namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami <coughs> so I'm color coded here um, just have to look something up here Question. Find out. What's that? This might take a few minutes. Not in Kindle. <laughs> iBooks. Okay. Gotta find the book and then we gotta find where it is in the book. This is a question on the word vinyana. And vinyana translated as, as consciousness, but it is translated in two ways, and one is the most common way, so it's translated as, as sense consciousness, eye consciousness, so sounds and sights and so on, um, but it's also translated synonymous to Nibbana. So now, I'm searching through a book called The Island, uh, which is put together by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro. And in that book, <laughs> I'm drawing this out, aren't I? <laughs> uh, it's nice. And in that book, uh, there are some brilliant, okay, one, we might make it, folks. Should have looked this up before. There is another way that this is described. Okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. So, so the word has been, so these are for, you know, for those of you who are familiar with the Pali, you have the teaching in the five khandas, the five aggregates. And the fifth aggregate is is uh, vinyana, and it's a way describe. It's a way of kind of describing how our experience is, is constructed. And so the fifth aggregate is uh, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, body consciousness, tongue consciousness, and mind consciousness, and that it arises and ceases according to contact. So I see things. So eye consciousness, I hear things, ear consciousness, uh, but. But there is another way this word is used. One of the, and this is in the chapter Unsupported and Unsupportive Consciousness. Th this book, um, The Island, is what you've always wanted to know about Nibbana. Um, it's a 
it's a difficult read, but if you're if you're into the literature, it's it's very very well done, and it brings up it brings in uh, not only the Pali Canon, but what the Theravada Forest tradition says that Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, um, uh brings in something from Dzogchen, and from Zen. Yeah, so it's quite very very well done. One of the ways in which the Buddha characterized the quality of awareness was to print, present it as a form of consciousness, vijnana. This represents a unique usage of the term. Customarily, vijnana only refers to the conditioned activity of the six senses. However, we also find that the Buddha gives us some adjectives with which to describe it. When the term is used in this unique way, vijnanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang, translated as Consciousness that is signless, boundless, all luminous. So consciousness that is signless, boundless, all luminous is one translation of this expression. <clears throat> it almost goes without saying that there is controversy as to the precise meaning of this enigmatic phrase. It appears only in a couple of places in the canon. However, the constellation of meanings of the individual worlds is small enough to give us a reasonable, clear idea of what the Buddha was pointing at. First, firstly, we must assume that he's using vijnana in a broader way than is usually meant. The Buddha avoided the nitpicking pedantry of many philosophers contemporary with him and opted for a more broad-brush colloquial style, geared to particular listeners in a language which they could understand. Thus, vijnana here can be assumed to mean knowing, but not the partial, fragmented, disc discriminative knowing which the word usually implies. Instead, it must mean a knowing of a primordial, transcendent nature. Otherwise, the passage which contains it would be self-contradictory. Secondly, anidasanang is a fairly straightforward word which means not, non, or without indicative visible, manis manifestative, i.e. invisible, empty, featureless, unmanifest, and so on. Anantang is also a straightforward term meaning infinite or limitless. The final phrase, sabotopabang, is a little trickier. Here is, well I'll go, I'll just go, through, skip that a bit. Okay, no, I'll go. You got nothing else to do, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> the final phrase, Sabotopabang, uh, is a little trickier. Here is Bhikkhu Bodhi's comment from note 513 in the Majima Nikaya. Um, Majima, the commentary on Majima Nikaya offers three explanations of the phrase Sabotopabang, completely possessed of splendor, Paba, possessing being everywhere and afford, accessible from all sides. Only the first of these seems to have any linguistic legitimacy. It is perhaps also significant that both of the instances where the phrase is used by the Buddha are in passages involving the demonstration of his superiority over the Brahma gods. It is thus conceivable that the phraseology derives from some spiritual or mythological principle dear to the Brahmins and which the Buddha is employing to expand the familiar meaning or to turn it around. 
As we saw in chapter two, this was a common source of the Buddha's choice of words and metaphorical images. So the Buddha was speaking into a, a Brahmin culture, kind of like someone here would be speaking into a Christian culture. And he would take, he would take Brahmin words and switch them around and give them a new meaning. So the, a Brahmin is someone who was born into the caste of Brahmin. And Buddha says, no, a Brahmin is someone who lives a celibate life, who lives a holy life. And so the, the Buddha was always very, very clever in that way. So you have to understand the context of which culture he was in. So the longer of the two versions of this phrase comes at the end of a colorful and lengthy teaching tale recounted by the Buddha in the Kevada Sutta. He tells of a monk in in the mind of whom the question arises, I wonder where it is that the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, cease without remainder. Being a skilled meditator, the bhikkhu in question enters a state of absorption, and the path to the gods becomes open to him. He begins, he begins by putting his question to the first gods he meets, the retinue of the four heavenly kings. So, you, you know, like in a, Brahmin, in a Brahmin tradition, Brahma is the chief god, right? So the Buddha's kind of, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek, really. <clears throat> anyway, bear with me. <laughs> he begins by putting the question to the first gods he meets, the retinue of the four heavenly kings, the guardians of the world. They demur, saying that they do not know the answer, but that the four kings themselves probably do. He should ask them. He does. They do not, and the search continues. Onward and upward through successive heavens, he travels continually being met with the same reply. We do not know, but you should try asking, da-da-da-da-da, and is referred to the next higher level of the celestial hierarchy. Patiently enduring the protracted process of following the cosmic, this cosmic chain of command, he finally arrives in the presence of the retinue of Mahabrahma. He puts the question to them, this is the retinue. This is Mahabrahma yet. Okay, you got that? Uh, the retinue puts the question to them. Once again, they fail to produce an answer, but they assure him that the great Brahma himself, should he deign to manifest, is certain to provide him with the resolution he seeks. This is very tongue-in-cheek, actually. I mean, this is polyhumor. Kind of... It's not Monty Python quite, but it's... Sure enough, before too long he appears, and at this point we are treated to a taste of the wry wit of the Buddha. And quote from the Majima, And that monk went up to him and said, Friend, where do the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, cease without remainder? To which the great Brahma replied, Monk, I am Brahma, great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, the ruler, appointer and orderer, Father of all that has been and shall be. A second time the monk said, Friend, I did not ask you if you are the great Brahma. Great Brahma, I asked you where the four great elements cease without remainder. And a second time the great Brahma replied as before. And a third time the monk said, Friend, I did not ask you that. I asked where the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, cease without remainder. Then Kevada, the great Brahma, took the monk by the arm, led him aside, and said, Monk, these devas believe there is nothing Brahma does not see. There is nothing he does not know. There is nothing he is unaware of. This is why I did not speak to you in front of them. But, Monk, I don't know. <laughs> 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 S 
so you can see, like, if Brahm is the, the, the guy that knows everything, this is trouble. But monk, I don't know where the, <laughs> the four great elements cease without remainder. And therefore, monk, you have acted wrongly. You have acted incorrectly by going beyond the Blessed One and going in search of an answer to this question elsewhere. Now, monk, you just go to the Blessed One and put this question to him, and whatever answer he gives, it, he gives you, accept it. So that monk, as swiftly as a strong man might flex or unflex, his arm vanished from the Brahma world and appeared in my presence. He prostrated himself before me, then sat down to one side and said, Lord, where do the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element cease without remainder? I replied, but monk, you should not ask your question in this way. Where do the four great elements, the element, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, cease without remainder? Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? And where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, where are name and for form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all-luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Thus the Lord spoke, and the householder Kevada delighted, rejoiced in his words. An alternative translation renders the final verse, where do earth Water, fire, and wind, long and short, fine and coarse, pleasant and unpleasant, no footing find. Where is that the name and form are held in check with no trace left? Consciousness, which is non-manifestative, endless, lustrous on all sides. Here it is that earth, water, fire, and wind, no footing find. Here again are long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant, name and form, all cut off without exceptions. So consciousness, which is non-manifestative, endless, lustrous on all sides. Who asked that question? Yeah. <laughs> so you got straight from the... <laughs> you did. <laughs> so, um, you, you, could, you can see that we, we, we tend to think that consciousness is only like this kind of temporary experience and, and, and what the teaching is suggesting can you, can you kind of step back from the temporary and look, is there something more profound, more vast, uh, more boundless, endless, unconditioned, uncreated, unoriginated, unformed? And it's kind of like a koan, isn't it? So it? You can't figure this out with thought because thought is always conditioned. It's always dualistic. So that it's like about relaxing the mind, letting go, uh, opening the mind. And what's been very interesting with these the, the interviews is that how how people have some something that is 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 um, some sense of lack or or some contraction or some friction, and they they just allow themselves to fully know that. And in the full knowing, there is there is some difficulty as it arises, but from that insight comes, and a sense of expansiveness and largeness comes from that. And that's the mystery of wisdom, isn't it? The mystery of insight. Why, why do you sometimes get it, and sometimes not? And, and that that mystery we don't we don't know, but we can we can lay the groundwork for uh, insight and understanding and 
and a broader understanding through through the sense of surrendering to the way things are, knowing the way things are, and letting that speak to us. Um, so, just for those of you who haven't read any of the texts, realize there, you know, the Buddha did realize something very, very profound, and that's one of the ways that it's talked about in the texts, and and uh, that's why it is a transcendent teaching in the sense there is this 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 possibility that that the Buddha said was was there. Yeah, so I think it. At our group interview, yeah, so that covers that, yep. So that's in chapter 8 in the island. In what ways do you consider our universe a moral universe? Well, that the action has consequences, intentional action has consequences. Um, not just psychological, but a larger, I don't know how it works. I have no idea how it works. But that, that, um, there, there are consequences to intentional, both, both um, wholesome and unwholesome, and that the way there is a way out of that whole moral universe, and that's that's this transcendent, the transcendent understanding. You don't get away with anything. For the person who asked about Buddhism in fiction, there's a biographical graphic novel entitled Buddha by Osamu Tezuka, the most famous comics author in Japan. Hua. Hua did a, a, a PhD in semiotics. Where are you? There you are. I said, you're doing a PhD in comics? No, no, it's semiotics. <laughs> so, we should get it for a library. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you and uh, Sumedho are referred to as Lompol. Generally say Lompol Sumedho. I think this is a term, title of respect and seniority, but it's always such a chawai. I think because that's what people are familiar with, but actually, long, long, uh, Ajahn Chah is usually known as Lompu. You have Lompa, Lompu, Lompi, and Longta. <laughs> and and Lompu is like venerable great grandfather. Lompa is like yeah no Lompu is like venerable grandfather. Lompu, yeah and Lompa is like venerable father. Lompi is venerable brother. And Long Ta is a strange one. Long Ta is like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how that translates, but Thais have a lot of beautiful honorifics, which they quite naturally put into the way they refer to their elders and juniors and so on. So the word Long Pa or Long Pu or Long Pi are, are used in a very um, warm way. They're not titles. So people always... You get a new name like Lone Paul. Oh, you've got a new title, but they're not titles. They're they're in um, they're in relationship. So like Ajahn Sumedha wouldn't call me Lone Paul. He'd call me Ajahn Viradhamma. It's not a title. It's in relationship. Um, yeah, they're very very ties have a lovely a lovely language around that. But what I really wanted to talk about.
um, was Buddhism. Um, the one of the questions that, that has come up or comes up is the um, the whole use of the uh, of the personal pronoun, not as self-identity, which personal pronoun are you going to use? <laughs> it's not a, a modern predicament. Rather, it's when when do we use the the word I, and 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 how do you how do you uh, how do you do that in Buddhism? Because, like I think, we were joking about someone who came new to Buddhism and they didn't want to use the personal pronoun, so they just wanted to be called it, and they'd refer to themselves as it. So they'd say it is going to get a cup of tea. <laughs> and, Oh, right, okay. New people come to it. Okay. And they, or they refuse to use a personal pronoun. No, the five aggregates are now going to the toilet. <laughs> so, yes, okay, it's, you're new to this, I understand. But the way, the way we use that is that when we're talking about conventional truth, such as morality and social responsibility and the rules that we keep and so on, we use the pronoun I. So I am Verdomo, I have a Canadian passport, uh, I live in Perth, and uh, I'm 72 years old, and, and so on. And that's a conventional use. If you didn't have that, life would just be stupid and silly. And that's where conventional responsibility rests. So as, as I was saying, if I, if I commit an offense to our, my rule, I can't say to Venerable Sirimedo, it's not self. You know, it's, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So I have responsibility, and so is he. Uh, so we, we look at life that way, and that, and that is called the Vinaya in terms of lifestyle. And Vinaya is the uh, code, the monastic code that we live by. And when the, 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 the Buddha was asked, who do you leave as your heir? Uh, there was no person the Buddha named. There wasn't a, a, um, a Dharma transmission, not in Theravada. It wasn't a transmission. It was, I leave you the Dhamma Vinaya. So I leave you the teaching, teaching and I leave you the lifestyle, the, the code, the monastic code as a way to live by. And then Theravada has always honored that. We've always honored the Dhamma, but we've always honored the Vinaya. The Vinaya got very much lost in some of the... Um, Later schools and Japan really lost the plot in the Second World War, where where monks were actually uh, blessing bombs for war, and encouraging uh, war. monks were doing this a war uh, in in the name of the emperor so that Buddhism could survive or something weird, very very weird, very weird. So the Vinaya is is our code that we live by, and Theravada very much honors that, very much honors that. And later on, that Vinaya. Um, was kind of cast aside or used and marginally used, but in Theravada it's very, very central. Um, so that's where the sense of personal pronoun, I am a monk, comes. But then when we, we are practicing understanding uh, the reality of things, then we use the, the idea of stream of consciousness. And there, in, in, uh, if, you, if, if one is asked, well, uh, uh, rather than saying, uh, I am angry, we use a different language. We use the language of dependent origination. 
which in Pali is Paticca or Ida Pachayata. And that means that the way we talk about it, with this as condition that arises, this being that comes to be. When there's this, there's that. Without this, there is not that. With this cessation, this, this cessation of that. So it's just this, that causality. So I switch the light on, I switch, I push the switch up, the light comes on, I push the switch down, the light goes off. Just very simple causality. And, and the, what's important in that kind of causality teaching is um, uh, where, where does suffering arise? How does suffering arise? And the teaching that we are given is around a sense contact and what happens with sense contact. So um, with contact as condition, there is feeling. And feeling here is Vedana. And Vedana means the, 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 the force of attraction that an experience can have for me, the force of repulsion experience can have for me, or the neutrality of it. So, you know, all experiences in, in, a, in, in, a, in a spectrum, right? So you can eat something and it's really, really um, sweet and attractive, or it's bitter and it's not attractive, or it's bland, right? So all sense experience, we would say, always has Vedana in it. It's one of the components of sense experience, Vedana. And that Vedana can be attractive, or repulsive. So the, the translation of the word is feeling, but it's specifically that. It's specifically that, that sense of, uh, wow, that's really beautiful, or oh, that's repulsive, or whatever. So all sense experience has that, and you can see that with sights and sounds, but especially mental phenomena, emotions. Um, so with contact as condition is feeling, with feeling as condition is craving, tanha. And tanha is the, the wanting of the pleasant and the not wanting of the unpleasant. And then with craving as condition, there is grasping, upadana. And, and grasping is the, the engagement now with the craving to maximize pleasure, minimize pain in mental ways or, or, or whatever ways one does. And then with craving as, as with, a, with a grasping or, or attachment as condition, there's becoming. There's birth, there's old age, sickness, and death. So this is how we talk about birth and death, not as a kind of external phenomena, but actually as a moment-by-moment -moment phenomena coming and going in the mind. And, and you can see that very clearly. If, you, if someone, um, let's say there's, there's someone that you don't like in, at work, and then one of your co-workers comes and tells you something about that person which confirms your dislike. So the image of the co-worker, you know, they, they say, you know, they, they, they nick those pencils again or something. Do people use pencils still? <laughs> anyway, okay. What, they nicked a, a, a computer or something like that. And you say, yeah. And, and, and so that triggers off, or that's contact, right? person says something. It's just, just language, but the language is loaded because you've got a whole backlog of resentments against this person. So with contact as condition, there's the feeling. And the feeling is, I hate that person. It, it reinforces something that's always there, oh, might be there already. And then with feeling as condition, it's negative, you, you, you grasp that and you want to hurt them. You know, there's this anger. And then with that as condition, you grasp it and you start to think about it and you're reborn as an angry person. This is going on all the time. Contact, feeling, craving, attachment, becoming old age, sickness, and death. That's what it's talking about. So you see how difficult this is. 
because memories are coming up and thoughts. But if you begin to look at stream of consciousness that way, rather than taking it personally, right? so you're going to come back to those three, uh, abandoning those three wrong strategies of self-view, uh, rich, rites and rituals, and just doubting and thinking all the time. And you notice that, that with this memory as condition, there's this negative feeling. And this negative feeling then produces these um, storylines. You cut it there. You cut it down. You have to be very mindful. But if you are mindful there, it doesn't grow into birth. It doesn't grow into a person. It ceases. And you see the ceasing of suffering. If, however, you, 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 you don't notice that, the unpleasantness of it, and you grasp it, and you think about it for 20 seconds, you got, you've got a bit of momentum there now. So it'll probably take you 20 minutes to... <laughs> Because if you've invested something into it, you've, you've created more around it. So the more you can notice, like contact and feeling and that whole sense of attachment that happens there and not go there, you, you liberate the mind. You're constantly liberating the mind. Hmm? But if, if you buy into it and you go with a storyline for an hour on that, well, you're going to get four hours tomorrow. Because <laughs> that's the way it works, the compound interest. <laughs> So you get really, really careful, right, around, around those areas where certain contacts just, just kind of get you going, right? It might be like um, a certain American politician. <laughs> you know, that might really press your buttons. Or, or it might be um, some, you know, like, like if you make a mistake and, 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 and the, the whole habit of mind is when there's contact with a seeming mistake, the mind just grasps it and runs with self-disparagement. Right? That's contact. It might be an, a, a person in the family or at work or it might be a bodily feeling or whatever. And contact is always there and feeling is always there. Vedana is always there. And, and then craving and a grasping of craving and the whole becoming, that's not necessary. And so the work of meditation is 24-7 uh, of noticing uh, contact and trying to, to see how the mind gets drawn into unskillful things. But you can have skillful contacts too. You can look at the sky, right? And you can, you can, you can do a kasa meditation, space meditation, look at the sky and relax the mind. So contact's not, there's nothing right or wrong. You can eat food and not starve. You can go for a walk and, and you, know, you know, stay in shape or look at the gravestones as we did. Um, so, contact is necessary, feeling is necessary, but this other bit that we attach to, that's, that's, that's the work, that's the difficult work that we do. Memory is very much that way, isn't it? You know, memory, you contact memory, you come, it, just, it gets triggered by something and then and then that triggers a whole train of events. So if it's uh, like if you're, if you're uh, an anxious person and, and someone says to you something problematic about future, that's contact. It's that statement is contact. And then because the habit is, oh, this might happen, you're reborn into that. But if you can get better and better at, so this is the feeling of fear, right there. Fear is this way. Then you break that cycle. You break the cycle of rebirth. How that works at death, I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I'll find out. <laughs> and I'm curious. But you can see how this would be a preparation for death. 
you know, with the whole sense of, of consciousness being reborn into these scenarios of self. And then what is consciousness that is not reborn? What is that luminous, undifferentiated? Huh? What is that? What is that about? And that when you when you when you see how stream of consciousness works and you don't grasp it, you begin to get the sense that, that there's there is consciousness which is not uh, where where this finds no footing, uh, the text said, where earth, water, fire, air find no footing, it doesn't it doesn't get stuck anywhere, it remains free, and and that's the kind of really point of Buddhism is to understand that. Um, so you'll see that teaching a lot, dependent origination, and 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 it's 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 kind of very important. If people ask you, well, if there's no self, you know what's going on. Well, first of all, Buddhism doesn't say there's no self, right? That's not, that's, not, that's not correct. It says that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease and is not self. So it's not an absolute. Because if you said there's no self, it would sound nihilistic, like there's nothing. But then you look, well, there's something going on, right? You know, this is no self. Yeah, but my knee hurts. So that's an actually uh, a, a misunderstanding of Buddhism when that... that. And, and, and uh, I think many people read into that, and they, they don't think about it too deeply. You know, well, Buddhism says there's no self. Well, wait. They think, well, actually, I'm here. <laughs> this hurts. And it says, ah, okay, that that which has a nature to rise has a nature to cease, and there's no self in that. Well, that's true, because if it's coming and going, there's no permanent essence in it, and emotion has no permanent essence. It comes and goes, it comes and goes. And then that comes and goes, or what doesn't come and go? Huh? So there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the deathless. Uh, or, or again, people will say that um, uh, everything is suffering. That's not Buddhism either. And why do it then? <laughs> if everything is suffering, why do Buddhism? They'd rather go to the pub. But Buddhism isn't saying that everything's suffering. It's saying that the conditioned is unsatisfactory. So, hence, realize the unconditioned. That's the whole point of it. So it's pointing, it's like the neti neti teaching, not this, not this, not that. All right. Um, so, Venerable Sirimedo and I have to dash off. Uh, we have to go back to the monastery for one night. Uh, we have a we have a we have a rule. Uh, we're we're from a very conservative tradition, by the way. We're very orthodox, and but orthodoxy requires orthopraxy. And orthopraxy is the practice of of I would say realizing the unconditioned. Right? So people find like orthodox maybe a difficult word, but they usually don't know that there's also the word orthopraxy. Which means, which means an authentic practice of realizing transcendence, and that's that's, that's our that's our practice. But we live in a very kind of uh, conservative, old fan. You know, this outfit is two thousand years old. You know, it's not changed, and we and we complain about it all the time. <laughs> it keeps falling off. Um, but seriously, we live by the Vinaya, and uh, uh, in the Vinaya, we try to as much as possible, live by the recommendations from the Buddha and the elders that were there and our elders in Thailand and the way we've, we've come to, 
to uh, use this in the West. And so we are we're in a tradition of elders. So this is called Theravada. Uh, Tara means elder, and Vada is the way of the elders. So we, we really respect our elders. So like Lumpo Cha, Lumpo Sumedho, we, we, we really try to honor what they've taught us. And, and Ajahn and Lumpo Cha said, no, just, just live as a bhikkhu in, in the West. Because, not that we were considering it, but there was a, also like, I remember there was an article in, in when I was in London in 70, 77, there was an article in a Buddhist journal which said, when monks come to the West, they should wear brown jackets and brown corduroys and, <laughs> and you know, leather things on their sleeves. You know. <laughs> Vicar image, right? And, uh, and they should drive cars and have salaries. And then when they're in temple, they should wear their robes. They should adapt. We all looked at it, so I'm going back to Thailand if I have to do that. So Lompo Cha said, be a bhikkhu and see if it works. And so um, it worked. Um, but anyway, why I say that is we have a, we have a, a, a certain discipline at this time, a, a set of rules around what we call the vasa. And the vasa is the uh, period of the monsoon in Thailand. It's called the rains residence. And from the full moon of July to the full moon of October, we have to be resident in a monastery. We can't be wandering. And we, have a, we come from a wandering tradition where monks are peripatetic, not pathetic. Cenobitic, <laughs> <laughs> is that the other one? Doesn't anyone know English here? <laughs> a cenobite, isn't that one who is... Cloistered? Yeah. Anyway, I digress again. Anyway, we have a rule. And the rule is that we should stay in the monastery for, uh, for that period of three months. And so we come together uh, and, and after the full moon of, of July, and we make a formal ceremony, and we determine to live in the boundaries of this monastery for these three months. But we're, we have an allowance that we can leave the monastery for six nights uh, for teaching. For teaching, or if a monk is ill at our monastery, if our parents are ill, for ver- various reasons. So, tonight's the night. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to go back for one night, and then we'll come back. Now that's not very efficient, right? Uh, and it sounds pretty darn dumb. But we decided not to go for efficiency, because it's very easy to take the rules and say, well... We'll just change it. I mean, yeah, people got to drive us. It's a hassle, right? Well, just stay. But what happens, of course, is then the whole thing begins to change. And who changes what? So we've decided, no, if that's the rule, okay, we'll do it. Uh, I mean, if, if I didn't have a lift and I had a broken leg and I was in hospital, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't make a deal out of it. But no, we can't do this. And what's happened is actually, because we've honored the rule, we've managed to be bhikkhus in these in these non kind of non Buddhist environments and it does work. And and the way our rule system works is if we if we go against, if we transgress the rule, it's not it's not most of the rules are not moral. They're social agreements. So if, if we transgress the rule we just we just acknowledge it to each other. I went outside of that rule. But they're not moral disciplines. That's what people quite often dis- misunderstand about the Vinaya. They think it's all moral principles and then this is not a moral issue. It's a so it's a kind of social agreement. 
and, and uh, but so we try to live by it, and that gives us a a common framework that we all agree upon. All you know, all our all our monasteries uh, uh, agree upon, and then a monk can come from Thailand or 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 one of our monks from California or England. We come and we just know how to live together, and it works really really well. And it's an agreement which is is isn't created by the abbot. Uh, or Lumpur Samet or Lumpur Chai, it's an agreement which the Sangha has kind of carried for a long, long time. And so it's really the, the, the source of harmony. Because, you know, if, did anyone do a commune in the 60s? Anyone try that? No. Uh, you know, what, where do commons break down? Probably who's going to wash the clothes, right? Or who's going to do the dishes? You know, it's just simple things like that. Whereas when you have a rule like this, like we have hierarchy, and we don't negotiate the hierarchy every morning. Right? We say, okay, who's going to be abbot? <laughs> you know, it's not them. No, you're a senior monk. You, you know, if you came in earlier than the other guy, then you're senior. Really simple. So it kind of simplifies everything, and everyone comes into it because they want to do it. We're not we're not gang pressed into it, right? Uh, and and it's 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 brilliant. It's actually brilliant. And what it does for the monastic community, even the lay people who live there, it frees us to. It frees us from this constant choice-making to just look at our minds. So it's an interesting reflection on freedom. It's not the freedom to do what you want all the time, but it's the freedom to witness and notice the way the mind is. It's a different kind of freedom. Um, and it, 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 it's really... And it's not like you're going to like it all the time, but that's not the point. You don't kind of sign up for the food, right? Or, <laughs> or for the bedding, <laughs> the linen. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it really works quite well. It's, it's a, the Buddha was brilliant, and Ajahn Chah's interpretation of it was 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 very brilliant too. Uh, and that, that's a hard thing for lay people to understand how that works as a as a vehicle for transcendence, because it seems so mundane. It is mundane. So, with all that in mind, you want to do the Handamayang? Handamayang Dhammakataya Sarukarang Dhamma Se Sadhu Sadhu.